Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals uh, this morning uh, virtually on uh, WebEx. Um, my name is uh, Donna Stroud, uh, and our panel this morning uh, includes uh, me as the uh, presiding judge. And to my right, we have my virtual right, because in the courtroom it would be my right, uh, we have Judge Jeff Carpenter. To my virtual left, we have Judge Allison Riggs. And we have one case for argument this morning, uh, State v. Todd, and I believe our attorneys are ready to proceed. And we can begin. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Yes. Uh, may it please the court, I'm Ann Gomez from the Appellate Defender's Office here on behalf of Mr. Todd, and I'm reserving five minutes for rebuttal. And first, I need to make a correction to my brief on page 16. I said this issue is governed by the 6th amendment. While that is the governing amendment for claims of IAC of trial counsel, uh, claims of IAC of appellate counsel is actually governed by the 14th amendment due process and equal protection clauses. And now that I've gotten that over with, um, initially, the state in its brief has conceded that the issues direct appeal counsel raised in it in uh, appeal appellate counsel brief below had no merit. Um, and that is on pages 31 and 34 of the state's brief. Um, however, the state also argues that the omitted sufficiency claim was meritless or was a weak or relatively weak issue and was not plain, plainly stronger than the meritless issues that were raised. The state also characterizes the sufficiency claim as not so much stronger than the meritless issues that uh, direct appeal counsel was not acting as counsel as contemplated by the Constitution. The state is incorrect. Instead, counsel's performance was deficient and there's a reasonable probability that had the sufficiency claim been raised either under an IRIC analysis or what the state characterizes as a traditional sufficiency analysis that Mr. Todd would have been successful on appeal. And a reasonable probability is one that is sufficient to undermine confidence in the outcome and it is not a more likely, more likely than not test. And here the evidence was insufficient, either applying IRIC or just under general insufficiency analysis. And essentially the evidence consisted of Mr. Todd's partial fingerprint on the outside of a vinyl backpack that was regularly worn in public for six months, including on a public bus where fingerprints could have innocently been impressed. And Mr. Todd maintained a residence 300 yards away from the scene of the robbery in a crowded residential neighborhood. Mr. Todd is black and Mr. Major was robbed by black men. The dearth of probative evidence supporting guilt is illustrated by the fact that throughout the course of these proceedings, the state has been throwing evolving handfuls of evidentiary spaghetti at the wall stretching and distorting the facts and the law in an effort to convince this court there was sufficient evidence and as well as our Supreme Court. And some of the things the state has relied on include in Todd 2, which is uh, the 249 NCAP case that this court decided that uh, the defendant's manner of speaking was the same as the robbers. 
And this is based on Mr. Major's testimony that the robbers didn't use a lot of eubonics. And uh, Detective Codrington's testimony that Mr. Todd spoke in a well-educated manner. The state also relied upon inapplicable cases where a fingerprint is found inside a building and the defendant denies having been in the building and cases where a fingerprint is found on the stolen property issue. And the state did not convince this court and Todd too that the evidence was sufficient. So in its brief in our Supreme Court, Todd three, the state claimed wrongly that state v. Scott, which has been cited in both briefs in this appeal, uh, supported its argument that Mr. Todd's failure to offer a plausible explana explanation to police of how his fingerprint got on the backpack was evidence of guilt. Scott held that when a defendant takes the stand and denies that he was ever at the scene of the crime, his inability to offer a plausible explanation for how his fingerprint was at the scene of the crime may be considered some evidence of guilt, but his silence at trial cannot be held against him. Uh, Scott says nothing about explanations or lack thereof in interrogations. And Mr. Todd never denied touching the knapsack and he did not testify at trial. So Scott is inapplicable. The state also attempted to add some more evidence that it claimed was substantial evidence of guilt, such as Mr. Todd's fingerprint was on the, and I'm quoting the state, the exterior of the knapsack. So therefore, it could only have been impressed at the time of the crime, which I would contend makes no sense. And also that Mr. Todd failed to offer police the obvious explanation that he likely touched the backpack in some public place because somehow Mr. Todd would have known that this backpack was regularly, regularly worn in public. Um, that Mr. Todd said he lived in Apex or with a relative near downtown and Detective Codrington determined he had an apartment on Westcliff Court. Um, Westcliff Court is not corrected is not connected to this crime, as I said out in my reply brief, and is located 300 yards, excuse me, from the crime scene in a heavily heavily populated residential area. So whether Mr. Todd lived on Westcliff Court or somewhere else is of questionable relevance. I also note that in its Todd three brief in our Supreme Court, the state cited to Mr. Todd's affidavit that was attached to his MAR to show that Mr. Todd admitted he kept an apartment on Westcliff Court. And in that affidavit, which is in the record on appeal in this case at page uh, 101, Mr. Todd stated he did have an apartment on Westcliff Court, but that he often stayed with his mother or another relative and mostly used the apartment to store his belongings. So what Mr. Todd told Detective Codrington is not inconsistent with this. And our Supreme Court implicitly rejected the state's argument that the evidence was sufficient, but instead ruled that appellate counsel should have an opportunity to explain his reasoning in choosing what issues to, to raise. And now before this court, the state has added Inaccurately, we would contend that Mr. Major heard the robbers run toward an alley leading to Westcliff Court and that Mr. Todd's resident was closer to Poor Tree Place where the canine lost the scent 
than it was to the crime scene, which we would also contend is inaccurate. That when Mr. Major wrapped his coat around the backpack at Red Lobster the night he was robbed, it must have wiped off any fingerprints, and therefore the usable prints found on the knapsack must have belonged to the robbers. This is highly speculative. And that Mr. Todd was arrested three and a half weeks after the robbery driving a car, and so therefore he never ever took the bus during the six months before the robbery. Also highly speculative. And in this appeal, thankfully, the state has dropped the eubonics argument. Um, the state's grasping at slender and varying evidentiary reads highlights the insubstantial nature of the evidence against Mr. Todd in this case. And because the insufficiency issue was plainly stronger than the meritless issues raised by appellate counsel, appellate counsel was ineffective for failing to raise the sufficiency issue to the, to the prejudice of Mr. Todd. Appellate counsel reasoned that IRIC did not apply because the prince could only have been impressed at the time of the crime. His reasoning was that because immediately after the robbery, the knapsack was put in a police car that no prints could have been impressed after the robbery. But it does not appear from what you wrote in this brief, <clears throat> excuse me, or his testimony at the MAR hearing that he considered whether fingerprints could have been impressed in the six months before the robbery when Mr. Uh, Major was wearing the knapsack in public. And and as well, an expert, uh, the state's expert on fingerprints testified that because the knapsack was made of vinyl, that a, just a slight touch would have been sufficient to, to put a fingerprint on the knapsack and that there was no way to know how long the fingerprint had been there. Appellate counsel also argued he omitted the sufficiency argument because it would, quote, cut pretty hard against the prejudice argument for this continuance issue. Uh, but in his numerous appellate internships and clerkships, he must have come across many, many cases in criminal appeals where insufficiency was argued as well as other regular trial errors. And I would seriously doubt that any of the judges on this court would have told him to hold it against the defendant with respect to the prejudice for the trial errors because they, the defendant also argued insufficiency. And um, I am also not aware of any appellate decision that applies this analysis. In summary, the sufficiency issue was plainly stronger than the meritless issues raised by appellate counsel. If sufficiency had been raised, there is more than a reasonable prob probability the issue would have prevailed on appeal. And for the reasons I set out in my brief, we contend the property re proper remedy here is to vacate the conviction. Um, and that's my argument. If there are any questions, I'll certainly entertain them. Any questions? Council, can you address the what the North Carolina Supreme Court's remanded for determination of whether a strategic decision had, had been employed? <clears throat> can you um, 
help me understand what the trial court's fact findings with respect to that strategic decision, how that impacts the ultimate question of whether the performance level of the appellate counsel was objectively reasonable. Well, the trial court did find the two things I talked about that he had reasoned that the finger in his mind, the fingerprints could have only been impressed at the time of the robbery. And the trial court also found his facts, and I'm sorry, I can't tell you what exactly the numbers are of those, um, that he reasoned that the sufficiency insufficiency argument would cut pretty hard against uh, prejudice arguments for the continuance issue. And beyond that, the trial court really didn't do much reasoning or, or saying, I mean, the trial court ended up saying in general, this is, you know, reasonable and within the general universe of effective appellate advocacy, but there really wasn't any reasoning that went in any deeper into why these uh, two reasons were a reasonable strategy at all. Do you have any arguments as as to as as a matter of law, the trial court seemed to simply be persuaded by Judge Tyson and Judge Stevens' logic. Why, as a matter of law, does that not answer the question of whether or not the um, performance of the uh, appellate counsel was reasonably, um, was reasonable? Well, we would contend that Judge Stevens' ruling should, <clears throat> excuse me, should not be considered at all. Um, because if that were a factor to be considered, it would weigh against every defendant raising IAC of appellate counsel for failing to challenge a judge's ruling. And I am not aware of any authority to support that notion, and the state has pointed to none. Uh, the fact that Judge Tyson dissented is a factor to be considered, but the dissent should not be considered in isolation. And we contend that given the totality of the evidence, we believe we've met our burden of sat satisfying both prongs of uh, Strickland and that Judge Tyson's dissent does not, as a matter of law, uh, mean that we lose. Our burden under Strickland is to show a reasonable probability of a different result. Any other questions? All right. All right. Thank you very much. You can reserve the rest of your time for rebuttal if you wish as much as you need. Yes, thank you. And we'll proceed to the state's argument. Good morning, Madam Chief Judge, and may it please the court. My name is Caden Hayes. I'm with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I'm representing the state in this matter. Your honors, as laid out in the briefing, this case has a long and tortured history already going before this court. I think this is the third time already before the Supreme Court. But today, there's really only one core issue that has to be decided. Was Mr. Waite's decision not to include the Uruk claim, the sufficiency claim, after a thorough investigation into the laws and facts surrounding it, was that decision not to raise it so erroneous 
that he was no longer functioning as counsel as envisioned in the Sixth Amendment, or I guess in various other constitutional amendments. Indeed, Strickland has said that uh, there is a wide latitude of professional conduct that is appropriate, and courts are to indulge a strong presumption that the defendant's attorney was acting competently. Indeed, I think Strickland itself says that uh, when there is conduct, uh, when there is an unraised issue on appeal, issues that have been investigated and thoroughly researched, those that decision is, quote, virtually unchallengeable. And this court in Baskins has also said that generally decisions not to press a claim uh, do not equal deficiency. And so with this kind of background in mind, um, defendant can't meet this in incredibly high bar because this is designed to catch only the most extreme examples. It's not a second direct appeal. I, I just heard um, my, my opposing counsel's argument, and it focused a lot on the value of this argument, which is a factor, but it's not dispositive. This is not a second appeal. Defendant needs to show more than just there was a um, potentially meritorious claim or even an actually meritorious claim. We're looking at deficient conduct, not necessarily prejudice. That's the second prong. And he can't, he can't meet that. Um, and so the fingerprint claim itself, I, I want to hit on um, really quickly that um, Eric has kind of a threshold analysis as laid out in the state's brief. There is a first requirement that the state show that the evidence, or sorry, that the evidence had to be standing alone in order to jump to the second prong wherein um, the state had to show substantial evidence that the uh, fingerprint could only have been laid at the commission of the crime. When the fingerprint evidence is not standing alone, we go back to traditionally sufficiency rules, which um, this court has applied so many times. And the standard, rightfully so, is incredibly favorable to the state. The, the court here is, is supposed to only really look at the state-friendly evidence, all contradictions in favor of the states, all reasonable inferences to be drawn from the record. I, I could go on, but this is designed to catch the most extreme examples where the state didn't present any evidence. So we have an extreme standard of sufficiency, and then we couple that on with the extreme standard of appellate IAC, and it's, it's just an almost insurmountable burden that defendants does not meet here. And the reason being is there are eight key pieces of evidence in this case. Now, of course, we have the fingerprint, which matched defendant. We have the victim giving a statement matching the race and gender of the defendant. We have the victim testifying. Let me ask you, Mr. Hayes, you have a statement that it matches the race and gender. Black man. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, that's a large percentage of the population. That's very true, Your Honor. And I, I think mean, we really literally have, as, as best I can tell, and correct me if I'm wrong, nothing else identifying about the person who did this. I think if you're speaking to direct evidence, yes, the fingerprint is the only evidence directly tying, like clearly, the defendant to the crime. But there is a mountain of circumstantial evidence surrounding it. And this court and our Supreme Court in several cases have said that circumstantial evidence, when we're talking about sufficiency, is, is fine. The, government, the state doesn't have to show that there was no other way that somebody could have been convicted. We don't have to cross out every exculpatory theory. Again, sufficiency is right. I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just sort of exploring whether the fact that there was a, a you know, black man, white woman, whatever, something that general, um, is enough to do away with the fingerprint standing alone. 
Uh, Your Honors, I think the fingerprint standing alone was meant to be construed strictly. I think the one case I've been able to find, uh, or, or not the one, but one case on point there is State v. Atkins, which was cited in the defendant's brief, wherein the defendant in that case, a pawn shop, was robbed. Somebody had opened the air conditioner vents and was able to sneak in and steal about $12,000. There's a fingerprint that matched the defendant, and that was it. That was the only evidence uh, for this court's opinion in that case. That was a fingerprint standing alone. And in that case, there was not sufficient evidence supporting uh, that fingerprint's placement, so the court vacated it. But we don't have that here. Matching race and gender is just one part of this tapestry of evidence the state presented to the jury. Because, again, the jury did convict the defendant. And that's an important thing to consider when we're talking about sufficiency. So we have a, we've got the matching race and gender. We have the victim telling... Just, just to clarify on Chief Judge Stroud's um, question, is it the state's position that identifying race and gender alone would be sufficient to provide um, independent extra evidence so that the fingerprint wasn't standing alone? Yes, Your Honor, because this the the Eric decision was meant to be construed strictly. We have case law that says these mandates typically are to be construed as such, and so. Maybe a race and gender match and a fingerprint match may not get you past sufficiency, general principles of sufficiency, because Chief Judge Stroud, you're right, that is a very wide net. But we do get out of Urikland, we do get out of this substantial, the requirement to show a substantial um, evidence that the, the fingerprint could only have been placed at the scene of the crime or during the commission of the crime. So we have the victim, we have the matching race and gender, the victim never giving permission to touch the backpack, and he's never seen the defendant before. The victim heard the robbers run across the street, which the detective later clarified leads to an alleyway that leads directly to West Coast Court. Uh, indeed, we have a dog sniff that kind of follows that same path, but loses them in a parking lot uh, along the way in Portree Place. Um, and then we have the defendant being arrested a few hundred meters from the robbery. Again, each of these pieces of evidence, when you silo them, when you just talk about matching race and gender, when you just talk about the, the, the fact that there's an alleyway there that the defendant kind of ran towards, according to the testimony. Yeah, we, we don't have sufficiency, but this is not a silo. We are considering all of this evidence. And so we then move forward and say, okay, police pick up the defendant following the arrest warrant. He goes into his interrogation and he entirely misrepresents where he lives. Now, uh, Opposing counsel says, oh, well, this affidavit, he said these other things. So he didn't really lie. But this is, we're not looking about that MAR affidavit. It wasn't before the trial court. It wasn't before uh, Mr. Waite when he made these decisions about what to press on appeal. So it's entirely irrelevant. What we have is detective saying that there was, uh, that, that after his investigation, he understood that the defendant lived in Westwood Court. And at this procedural juncture, that's the end. There is no looking into, oh, well, maybe this other scenario, maybe he would have lived there kind of stuff. That, that doesn't matter. This is sufficiency. We look at the state's evidence and we look at the reasonable um, uh, inferences based thereon. And so we have the defendant not uh, kind of given this, uh, misrepresenting the story. And then defendants presented with the fingerprint evidence. And he says, oh, well, my friend's, it must have been a friend's backpack that I touched and then the friend was robbed. It's this in fanciful story that doesn't really strand, stand at the scrutiny. And opposing counsel points out and says, well, the state is challenging um, the defendant's right to silence. And that's very, that's not, that's not correct. 
that it misses the mark. When a defendant is arrested, he is given Miranda warnings. It's long been practiced. And part of those warnings are, you have the right to remain silent or anything you say can and will be used against you. That's what happened here. He made these statements after being Mirandized and they're being used against him just as he was warned. And that's not improper of the state to do. And so again, we build more into this tapestry. And then we have last, um, Agent Snyder's testimony uh, about the fingerprint. Now, this is a reasonable inference. You have Agent Snyder testifying that the unique fabric of the backpack is this vinyl plastic that uh, retains fingerprints more than maybe cloth fingerprints because the oil that is made up of those fingerprints doesn't sink in and kind of dissipate. It stays on top. But by that same token, Agent Snyder testifies that a single swipe of the cloth a single swipe of the hand can remove or at the very least distort those fingerprints. So we have in this case, defendant, or sorry, the victim travels, works at Red Lobster for his shift. He goes in, he wraps his backpack with a cloth or, or sorry, his, his, um, uh, his back or his uh, jacket, which is a cloth. And it maybe would be, um, he, he then goes on his walk home at midnight he gets robbed and they dust a backpack for fingerprints not a couple minutes after they find two fingerprints two usable fingerprints it's unclear from the evidence whether there was like partial fingerprints that really couldn't be salvaged or what but we know there were two good fingerprints which were both pulled which really buttresses this reasonable inference that he wiped off all pre-ship fingerprints there was not a hundred different fingerprints smeared around as maybe uh, opposing counsel would point out or in the, the defendant's briefing kind of that oh he was, was there was there any evidence of that there were others that were just not usable i mean was it that detailed or was it just these are the do we have that much detail that we even know if they looked for others or you know if it was just these two that they could actually identify clearly your Honor, there is not evidence specifically saying these are the only two things of uh, fingerprints I found. There was nothing else in the backpack. What we do know is that she looked at the entire backpack. Um, I believe the record sufficiently states that the, she looked at the whole backpack. She found two good fingerprints and she pulled them. And lo and behold, one of those fingerprints came to defendants, as we know. And so we have this kind of mountain of circumstantial evidence, which is then tied to the defendant clearly through his fingerprint. And that means the fingerprint evidence was not standing alone. We had a ton of other evidence that pointed circumstantially towards the defendant. Counsel, if each of those, so let me let me ask you about each of the, uh, a couple of those pieces. The evidence that he was pulled over a month later, three and a half weeks later, in a, in the same neighborhood, but it's a densely populated neighborhood, What's the state's position of like, what is the length of time where that becomes irrelevant and it isn't circumstantial evidence supporting um, your case? Well, I think there's a little bit, uh, I want to, I guess, challenge one of the premises of your question in the sense of they're always going to be circumstantial. Six months from now, it was still going to technically be circumstantial. Its probative weight might have diminished pretty significantly in the case of six months, but it's still circumstantial evidence. And so, one month, yeah, it's not as strong as if the police found him two days later or a day later or something like that. 
but it's still circumstantial evidence. It's still valuable information that the police used or that the state used in prosecuting this case, and rightfully so. I mean, you add one to one enough times, eventually you're still going to reach 100. Doesn't and matter. If the state's, is the state's position likewise that the probative value of circumstantial evidence would also decline given the size of the neighborhood? So if he's located in a neighborhood with a million people as opposed to 10 people, that the probative value of the fact that that's where he was found uh, also declines? I would think, Your Honor, that would be correct. Um, but again, to be clear, this neighborhood didn't have a million people um, or, or anything close to it. Yeah, Does see, the record show how many people lived in the neighborhood? It doesn't, Your Honor, but the Google map that opposing counsel put forward as a supplement to the record kind of, you can see the road, how far it goes, um, and it's surrounded by um, houses. Uh, but it's certainly not an exorbitant number of houses. Um, I couldn't give you a solid number um, off the top of my head, but it's certainly not a million. Or, or does, does the record support that it was a densely populated neighborhood, though? Uh, Your Honor, I, I'm not familiar with an exact statement along those lines. I do remember in Todd too, this court kind of concluded as much. Um, I mean, I quibble with your word densely, but it is, we're in Raleigh, it is a city, so it is a fairly densely populated um, area. But again, we're talking about the probative value. We're not talking about right, whether it comes into the analysis at all, um, because we can silo this evidence. As with the matching race and gender, as Chief Judge Stroud pointed out, yeah, if we all we had was we stopped him nearby and he lived in this neighborhood, yeah, we probably don't have enough evidence to go to a jury. But we have way more than that. We have, we have seven, eight other pieces of evidence that are important distinctions. Again, sufficiency is designed to catch worst problems. We, we give every inference to the state. We want juries to decide this question. And they decided to convict it. They thought there was enough evidence here. And so they convicted him. And so we have um, this, this, this tapestry, or I guess is opposing counsel spaghetti, uh, full of evidence um, that we have presented here. And so there really was a weak Eric claim, because even if we were to go into this um, analysis of, well, was there substantial evidence that the fingerprints could have only been impressed at the time of the robbery? The state has met it. And I think the most powerful piece of evidence, there's, there's three. Um, I mean, the, the big one is Asia Snyder's testimony about the wiping of the fingerprints. Um, you know, we can look at State v. Cross, uh, where the Supreme Court um, ruled and said that, oh, the weird placement of, of the fingerprint was enough, given other testimony in the case. So it's not a high burden. It, it is just enough evidence to convince a rational juror to, uh, to, to that would agree with that position. Uh, so we have this, this chain of reasonable inferences that is buttressed by um, other facts in this case, other evidence, that all pre-shift fingerprints were smudged or wiped away, except for these two, these, these one, which was the defendant. Um, and beyond that, Eric itself kind of gave a non-exhaustive list of things the state could show that would satisfy its burden. One of which is that the defendant never saying that he touched the backpack or, or the, the, he's never been to the location of the crime. Um, and in, in those cases under Eric, it is dispositive, period. Here we have a mobile state uh, object that is moving around. And so it's not necessarily dispositive, but it is helpful. It is probative. We have, um, and I, I want to dispute briefly, um, defendant in his reply brief seems to argue that the state says that this is dispositive. It's not. It, it's not. 
it is probative. It is helpful in coming to this conclusion. And then we have uh, the next step of Eric, which says that if a defendant um, uh, says that he's never touched the object, that could be enough. Now, Eric discussed in the context of defendant taking the stand and saying, I never touched that, um, which, and also the defendant here said that he did touch it, but it was his friend's backpack or maybe it was stolen. Again, not dispositive now. It's outside the realm of what is a non, uh, what is a dispositive thing here, but it is probative. All of this is probative and all of this comes together to meet this standard. Now, Defendant argues in rebuttal that the defendant could have innocently impressed it in a number of examples. And I think there are three uh, big ones, which was the bus at Red Lobster or just somewhere else. And I want to, again, um, highlight that Golder and Golfin say that the state doesn't need to show, doesn't have to rebut every single uh, exculpatory theory. That's not the point of substantial evidence. This is not beyond a reasonable doubt. That was for the jury to decide, and they did. And so we have this kind of car versus bus. Well, he was arrested driving a car by himself. It's not a, it's a reasonable inference to say that he owned that car. And if you own a car, you're unlikely to take the bus. It's not a, it's, it's, a, it's a reasonable inference to say as much. So he wouldn't have touched the defendants. Is there any evidence as to when he got the car? Uh, no, there's not, Your Honor. But again, or that he even owned the car. No, Your Honor. I think this is a reasonable inference. Again, this is we're not trying to come up with every right. theory. No, there's not registration or something to that effect. In this well, case. let me ask you another thing. So, you know, if there is sufficient evidence that the the IRIC situation is not presented here, it's not a fingerprint standing alone, we've got these additional things that the jury could determine. Why did the Supreme Court send this back for a hearing? What were they, what was the purpose of that? Your Honor, I interpret Todd 3 to say, whoa, whoa, let's not talk about prejudice until we get to deficient performance. Let's talk about this first. And, and that's why, you know, speaking here today, that's what I'm talking about first. That is a crucial element in this piece. And I think notably, it goes back down. Uh, Mr. Waite takes the stand and says, yeah, I got this. I have spent years clerking, interning at various appellate mm -hmm. judges and courts. And I got this case. I disagreed with the motion to continue. And I went to the appellate defender's office workshop for a kind of, for a workshop. And we know the appellate defender at the time herself was there. Now, we don't know what was specifically said in these meetings, but we do know that he emerged from that meeting confident that I'm going to raise this motion continue issue and the uh, kind of corollary ineffective assistance of counsel point. I mean, really, what, what more was he supposed to do from a preparation standpoint? This is a, a classic strategic decision. And if we talk about just the reasonableness of it, it is not, the Eric claim is not plainly stronger. I, and I want to begin this by briefly addressing two things that, that opposing counsel said. First, the state doesn't necessarily concede that the two claims um, presented were meritless. This court already determined that we just agree with you on that position. Um, that doesn't mean that they had no merit whatsoever. They were arguable. They were colorable. This case of State B. Barlow involved similar circumstances, not the same extremes. So again, this court properly rejected, but there was a good basis of argument to bring it up. And he did, and this court rejected it, properly so in our opinion. And so we have these two claims, colorable, maybe not entirely meritful, but colorable. And we have this Eric claim, which is meritless in our state content. But even if we were to say, oh, well, 
Eric claim was close, which um, this court did in Todd too, saying on page 189 that uh, this is a, the evidence was enough to raise a, a colorable um, inference as to guilt, I believe. But that's not the standard. That's not enough. You've got to show the evidence that the unraised claim was plainly stronger, which doesn't. Equipose is not the same. And so we have this, um, this, this, this relatively weaker claim. We have two claims that were probably rejected by this court. And so we just don't have deficient performance. Again, we don't, the, the courts are supposed to indulge a strong presumption that the, def that the defense counsel acted um, correctly. And we're not supposed to be doing any sort of- So reading um, the, the trial court's fact findings and conclusions of law uh, on the MAR, am I, I, it's not the state's position that the remand for the fact finding and question about whether a strategic decision was taken in any way changes the law, that conclusions of law remain subject to de novo review by this court, is it? Uh, yes, Your Honor, yeah. Legal conclusions are still reviewed de novo. I think the Todd three opinion says that we have kind of two inquiries in a deficient performance. Um, was this a strategic decision? That's a factual question. Court finds that there is. The MAR court finds that there is. And was that objectively reasonable? Which other case law has indicated that's the plainly stronger question of it all. It, typically, when we're talking about appellate ineffective assistance, it is an appellate attorney missing an issue, not doing sufficient research, not understanding the facts. And that's different. But this is, this is a whole other can of worms, proverbially. It is involving, we, we no longer have an attorney who is not doing their the work required. We are just saying, oh, wow, this claim was so obvious. Any reasonable attorney would have raised this. Again, right, you may disagree with Mr. Waite's conclusion that this was not a reasonable issue. That's fine, but that's not the standard. You effectively have to say everybody would have disagreed, or at least almost everybody. And if we turn to the actual record of this case, nearly every court that has touched it has concluded that the Eric claim was uh, not meritorious. Um, and I, I want to briefly point out, opposing counsel and defendant's brief says that Judge Stevens, consideration of Judge Stevens' repeated rejections of this claim um, should not be considered. I, I think that's incorrect, and it conflates the issues here, right? For prejudice purposes, yeah, we don't look at Judge Stevens' trial court orders because that would be what's up for review. This court reviews those decisions de novo. But when we're talking about deficiency, we're looking at what is a reasonable norm here. Was this plainly stronger? And we have to look at all the judges who have already said that this is not a reasonable claim. This is not a meritorious claim. And so it's just the defendant doesn't meet the burden. Again, we have Mr. Waite who went to an appellate defender's workshop. He did everything he was supposed to. And he emerges, he makes his arguments, and he, he thinks he has a winning one. This court disagrees, and in our opinion, rightfully so, but that doesn't mean the Uruk issue was so strong that everybody would have raised it. Anybody who reasonably looked at it would have raised it and should have raised it. It's just, it's a different burden. Um, and, and so there just wasn't sufficient performance here. And so the appellate IAC claim just, just must fail. Um, and I wanna briefly note, when we talk about prejudice, it is of course the state's contention that there was no prejudice for the same reasons I already outlined above that the evidence was not standing alone, we met sufficiency, et cetera, et cetera. Um, defendant argues here that the proper remedy, rather than being another appeal, as is typically the case, 
is just to skip that and just go straight to vacature. But then says, well, reasonable probability is the standard, which is correct. Reasonable probability in terms of prejudice is the standard. But if that's the case, reading them together, in effect, this court is not asking, he's, he's not asking this court to affirmatively find in favor of the defendant on the court issue. And there, he is effectively shortcutting the system by being able to win on a lower standard than just winning on a meritorious issue. So if, if this court were to rule against us on deficiency, um, the proper prejudice prong, the proper prejudice analysis is not just reasonable probability. It is, does the defendant win? If that's, if vacature is what the defendant is seeking, that's what he needs to show. And if we want to skip the briefing that normally comes after a finding of appellate IAC, that's fine. But this court needs to find that there is, there is actually a meritorious. This is a winning claim that um, the defendant has, has succeeded in showing. Um, and so, Your Honors, uh, for the aforementioned reasons, as outlined extensively in the brief, defendant has failed to meet the incredibly exacting burden of deficient IAC. Mr. Wade did everything he was supposed to, and he looked at tons of evidence and law and came to his conclusions. He argued what he thought was the best argument, as every attorney does when they first see their case. He didn't miss a line of inquiry. He didn't miss case law. He knew it all. And he made his arguments, and this court rejected them. And that's fine. The state agrees with that. But we can't come back in here and say, oh, well, here's this other claim that maybe would have won, maybe wouldn't have. State contends it wouldn't have won, but even if we did, that's not the standard. And so we just don't, we just don't have deficient performance. And even if we did, this court, there is no prejudice here. This is, the ERG claim is unmeritorious um, at its core. So... Unless there are any other further questions from your honors, the state respectfully requests that this court uh, affirm the MAR court below. Okay, thank you. And a rebuttal? Let's see. I think you're muted. Okay. There we go. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, thank you, your honor. Um, I'd like to first address uh, the state's argument concerning the strong presumption of reasonableness and the council's decisions made after a thorough review of law and facts um, are virtually unreviewable. And admittedly, it is a high burden to prevail on a claim of appellate IAC, um, but it it is a claim that exists and it wouldn't exist if council's decisions were completely unreviewable. And in my principal brief, I cited cases from a number of different federal circuits and uh, maybe a couple states finding um, appellate IAC. Uh, also in Davila v. Davis, uh, U.S. Supreme Court case, they said there's appellate IAC if an omitted claim is plainly stronger than the claims that were brought. And so. You can have appellate IAC. We're not just going to say, okay, he made some decisions. He looked at Arik. Uh, he wants the appellate workshop. Therefore, you know, you you lose. Um, those decisions still have to be um, reasonable. Um, and at, for the reasons I explained in my pleadings and in this argument, uh, those decisions were not reasonable. And this is also, I want to point out, a unique case where we contend the state uh, has conceded that the issues were meritless or at least extremely weak. Um, and also because appellate counsel's 
reasons were utterly unreasonable. So this is not a case where counsel is choosing among uh, several sort of average col colorable, colorable issues that are all kind of on the same plane. This is some, and I explained in my principal brief why the issues that he did raise were really, really bad and could never win. Um, so this isn't sort of choosing among, well, this one's okay, that one's okay, I'm not so sure about this one. This is choosing two issues that from the get-go we're never going to win and not doing a thorough analysis of the IRIC issue because he did not consider whether the fingerprints could have been impressed before the robbery. And he also made the sort of erroneous thing in his head that the arguing insufficiency would detract from the continuance issue, which it would not. Um, I want to uh, address next just briefly the affidavit. Um, I realized this was not a trial exhibit and it's hearsay. Um, the state did cite to it in um, Todd three as it was included in that record on appeal. So I kind of figured what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Um, it is in this record on appeal without objection and certainly this court can disregard it if it shouldn't be considered. Um, next, the state has relied upon um, Barlow, and that case does not help the state at all. Um, and I sort of set out a detailed uh, timeline of what the Barlow uh, attorney did in that case. It's in my reply brief. I think it is 12 to 14. And in this case, counsel did nothing. Mm -hmm. Council learned of the fingerprint four and a half months before trial, did not uh, seek the fingerprint through like a motion to compel discovery, uh, did not informally seek the fingerprint, uh, say through emails to document her efforts to get the fingerprint, did not contact an expert so the expert could be ready to look at the fingerprint when she got it. And if this uh, attorney had done those things and shown up on the first day of court and said, look, I just got this fingerprint yesterday and, you know, you had uh, granted my motion to compel and the state was supposed to turn over the print by this date. The state did not. And I followed up with these emails and I was ignored and here are the emails and, uh, you know, here's my affidavit about contacting an expert or she could have just uh, as an officer of the court you know, just sort of represented to the court. I, I've got an expert ready to go. I just got the print yesterday. I called the expert. She said she needs a week. So can we have a week continuance? If that had happened, that all making efforts to do something, then this case would be closer to Barlow. But this attorney did absolutely nothing. The continuance issue was just doomed to fail from the start. Um, I also want to uh, briefly address remedy, and I do realize that the reasonable probability standard is lower than the standard for this court determining that there was insufficient evidence. And I guess I contemplated uh, that this court would determine first whether there was ineffective assistance of counsel, and then 
in order, because we're on appeal now and to conserve judicial resources, if there was ineffective assistance of counsel to then do an analysis of whether the evidence was truly insufficient. Um, and to finish up, I would like my papers not to be falling down. I would like to uh, just read a couple short passages from um, Strickland v. Washington. The first is from page 688. Counsel has a duty to bring to bear such skill and knowledge as will render a trial a reliable adversarial testing process. And on page 696, it says, in every case, the court should be concerned with whether, despite the strong presumption of reliability, the result of the particular proceeding is unreliable because of a breakdown in the adversarial process that our court systems um, that our court that our system counts on to produce just results. And here, this court should be very concerned about whether the adversarial process has yielded a just result thus far. It has been over 10 years since Mr. Todd was convicted. And we would request that this case be finally put to rest and that Mr. Todd's conviction be vacated. Thank you for listening to my argument, Your Honors. Thank you very much for both of your arguments and we will adjourn court now.